Last week, I uh, spent time on the importance of God's word if we really want to have communion with God and meet with him. He will really speak to us, and we can hear him in a multitude of ways, but especially through his word. This is his letter to us. But we can read this, and we can be very faithful at reading the Bible and devotionals and never hear the voice of God, really never have a relationship with God. In fact, the religious leaders in Jesus' day would do that. Jesus told confronted the religious leaders in John 5 when he said, you, you study the, diligently the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus said, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And we could do the same. Strong relationships are contingent upon communication. And uh, we communicate with God through prayer and through his word. But we can talk at God and never really commune with him either. In 1977, there was a Catholic scholar named Hans Kung who wrote a detailed book on being a Christian, it was called, on every subject in the spiritual life. In fact, there are 702 pages in this book. When some of his colleagues gently... Uh, pointed out that Kung had written an entire book about having a relationship with God, but neglected to mention prayer one single time in his book, Kung was mortified. And he said, well, I was up against the publisher's deadline. I was in a hurry, so I forgot. (laughs) Which rings true for us as well today. We can become so hurried and frantic in, in this pace of our world that we can neglect communing with God especially with prayer Paul wrote to his young protege his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 he said Timothy I urge you then first of all that petitions prayers intercession thanksgiving be made for all people notice I urge you that means this is urgent And after he said, I urge you, he said, first of all, which is the utmost importance, before you do anything else, present your request to God, your petitions, your supplications, your intercession. Make it your top priority. And I think we all know that we ought to pray more. Leonard Ravenhill wrote these convicting words years ago. He said, the church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many resters, but few wrestlers in prayer. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. People who are not praying are simply playing. In the matter of effective praying, never have so many left so much to so few. Brethren, And sisters, let us pray. And I suspect he's right, in the American church especially. If we have a church picnic, or go to the pumpkin ranch, or have a Halloween party even in the parking lot, or or if we have a pool party, we may get 200 people to show up because we're having burgers, and it's fun, and it's awesome. And I love doing these things, and I always look forward to them. 
But if we have a prayer service, I'd be doing jumping jacks and somersaults if we got 20. And that's not just in our church, that's in probably most churches. Why do we pray then? John Wesley says, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. James, in his epistle, wrote, We have not because we ask not. Samuel Chadwick wrote, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So if prayer is so important, why in heaven's name don't we pray more? In fact, sometimes people complain when the pastoral prayer is too long in church. It seems illogical, I think, that we don't do so. But what seems even more illogical is we wrestle in prayer because we have misunderstanding of what prayer means or what it looks like, what it entails. Again, it seems illogical in, in some respects. According to Jim Dennison, well, if we're to pray, for example, Lord, um, this COVID-19 thing is happening. Uh, let's gather together on Monday at 7 o'clock and let's just pour out our petitions to God. Lord, end this pandemic. End it. And that seems illogical to pray that way. As Dennison points out, there are four misunderstandings as to why people question their need to pray. And none of these are positive or accurate. They're misunderstandings. First, our prayers tell God something that he doesn't already know we think, as if he's unaware of COVID-19, as if God is unaware at how the economy is tanking, or as if he's unaware that people are very lonely in nursing homes, quarantined from loved ones. And so we need to remind him, but if God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing, then why would we need to inform him? A second misunderstanding. Our prayers convince God to do something that he would otherwise not do. We have to convince him by our prayers. So we pray hard. But then we think, but if God is all loving, then why do we need to convince him to do good things? Or thirdly, our prayers earn God's help only when we satisfy the requirements, like praying long enough or frequent enough, repeating the same prayer over and over again. But if God is a God of grace, then why do we have to earn his favor in prayer for him to act? And then a fourth misunderstanding. Our prayers demonstrate faith, which then requires God to act. But if God is omnipotent, if he's all-powerful, then why do we have to force his hand and twist his arm by our faith? And so, even subconsciously, we think, we really don't need to pray, pray, because God's in charge anyway. These common misunderstandings cause us to wrestle. So why do we pray? What is the primary reason why God wants us to pray? Well, I'm sure there are many, but I think the primary reason is God positions us to receive what God wants to give. He doesn't force us to receive what his grace seeks to give. He will not force us to pray. 
James says we have not because we ask not. He's a gentleman, and he's not going to force his will on us. But it opens us up, and it positions us in a place to receive all that he has for us. Now, King David wrestled with God in prayer like we do. He often bore his soul through his prayers, and we have a compilation of his prayers in the book of Psalms and their hymns as well. Uh, Many of them, most of them are from David or his son Solomon. And in Psalms, uh, David draws the um, he, he draws us into his world, and he, he calls um, us to share his emotions and his doubts and his struggles as he pours out his heart to God. He gives us a front row seat into his emotions. And this gives us language for our prayers as well. When I have a hard time praying, I don't know how to pray, or I'm really confused, I turn to psalms. I can open up to any psalm and just pray it just about. And I, I just put it in my own words, pour out my soul, soul to God. And one such example is in Psalm 25, if you have your Bibles or phone apps. Psalm 25 is where I'll spend the rest of the, this morning in. Psalm 25. Psalm 25. All right. Uh, it's Psalm 25 is of David. It's a psalm of trouble or pain. Uh, a lot of psalms of laments um, are in the book of Psalms. Perhaps uh, most, most believe this is when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. Absalom was trying to overtake the kingdom. He wanted to eliminate the earth from his father because he wanted the throne. He was power hungry. And so he got together an entourage of, of men and pursued David, went to kill him. And David learned of this. He had to flee for his life from his son. And so Psalm 25 is a psalm that he would have written during this time. In the first half of the psalm, though, David conveys his trust and hope in God. And so we read in verse 1 and 2, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. And it continues on in, through uh, verse 15 in, in the same vein, and he, he ends that section, My eyes are ever on the Lord. I'm trusting in you, Lord. One would think that David is walking on cloud nine because he has such an amazing faith and trust in God and everything is so positive. I'm trusting in you. You will protect me, Lord. You will go with me. You will, you will, um, your, your power will be seen around me. But then we get to verse 15 and we hear what's going on inside of David's emotional state. We read, My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Let Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame. David admits that he's feeling trapped and lonely and afflicted and brokenhearted and anguished and distressed. 
and he's fearful because of his enemies. He feels rejected and hated. He feels vulnerable and insecure. And who could blame him? People are pursuing his life. How would you feel if someone assembled a posse and came to your house in order to kill you and to rob you blind? And how would you feel if that person was your brother or sister or your son or your daughter leading the charge? It'd break your heart. The one that you poured your life into, the one that you helped raise and rear is the one who's turned on you. So you can imagine how anguished the heart of David was. Well, what was David's response to his son's rejection and to such injustice? Well, he did what he did all of his life, ever since he was a young shepherd boy, preteen. He poured out his heart to God in honesty. Notice how David specifically positioned himself to receive from God what God had for him in his prayer. And I'm going to show you four things that David did that we can do. First, David redirected his trust and placed his trust in himself. I mean, he redirected his trust in himself to trust in God. Prayer redirects our trust into God's hand. He says, in you, Lord, I trust. My God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Verse 3, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then in verse 15, notice how he trusts God here. My eyes are ever on you, Lord. I'm trusting you. For only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me, God, and be gracious to me. Verse 17, relieve the troubles of my heart and free me. Verse 18, look on my affliction and take away my sins. Verse 19, see how numerous my enemies are. See me, see my situation. Verse 20, guard my life and rescue me. In other words, David was saying, Lord, even though my life is painful and confusing, I choose to place my trust and hope in you. Let me not be put to shame. David's prayer was a dying to his self-sufficiency and looking to God's sufficiency for his life. Self-sufficiency is the cancer to all of our sin. It was the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent who said, hey, you, you guys can be like God. You don't need to listen to that voice, that, that God. You can be your own God. You can rule your own life. It is now time for you to grow up. It's time for you to expand your horizons. And so they believed that they could be their own God. And we've made that same mistake ever since. We wake up on Monday morning and I really don't need God. I don't need to pray. You know, I got my finances in order. I got my job. I got my family. got my experience and education. And I've got my talents and gifts. I've got plenty of food. I really don't need God. So prayer redirects our trust to God. Secondly, when we pray, it reshapes our perspective from our perspective to God's perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, when we walk through confusion and painful trials, 
As the book of James says, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. Then he goes on to say, James does in James 1.5, when you're going through these trials, if you lack wisdom, if you're confused, if, if you don't know what's happening, then you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you, this wisdom. Psalm 25, verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord. The Lord will give us insight when we're walking through difficult times. When we look up, God gives us glimpses into his perspective and his plan for our lives. In verse 4, David says, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. In verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners. Instruct me, Lord. Verse 9, again, guide me. He guides the humble in what is right. Teach me, Lord. He teaches them in his ways. Verse 10, all of the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep his commands or demands. Notice, I, I, I transfer or uh, my perspective, reshape my perspective to your perspective. It's your ways, God. It's your paths. It's your truth. It's your teaching. Now, when we pray for wisdom, God may not give us a complete and full picture of what's happening behind in the spiritual realm, why things are happening the way they are, why they're not working out the way that we would hope. God doesn't give us a full picture all the time. Sometimes he does, but oftentimes he does not. And so, but what we can rest assured in is that he will give us full assurance that he is with us in it and through it like this little child oh, in verse 10 all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful whatever you're going through even when you're confused and hurt know that my ways are loving and faithful I will never forsake you I will never leave you I will always be with you I will never abandon you like the little kid who's lost in a big city and, and he didn't know where to go to get back home. And so he saw a police officer and went, went to the police officer and said, can you help me find my home? And told him the address. And so the police officer stood there and gave him direct directions. Okay, go two blocks this way, make a right, and then go half a block that way, and then, ma and then go and make another right. And so the kid looked bewildered and scared and shaken. And so the police officer said, well, I know he's not going to remember this. So I said, he reached out his hand. He said, here, take my hand and come with me. And that's what God does. He leads us. He doesn't reveal all the details, but he takes our hand and he leads us one step at a time. And he never leaves us. Prayer reshapes our perspective to God's perspective. And thirdly, prayer renews our passions and our desires. When we pray to God, he changes our desires. Verse 12 says, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. Our choices are instructed by the Lord when we commit them to the Lord. The more we fear the Lord, and fear doesn't mean be afraid of, it means to revere him and respect him and honor him and, and look to him. When we do that, then he changes and realigns our desires and passions. Verse 12 says, he will instruct them in the ways that they should choose, which is similar to Psalm 37, 
When David wrote, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. My prayers become less about what I want and more about what God desires. It's not like I pray, Lord, you're going to give me the desires of my heart? Good. I want a new pony. I want a new pony. It's Kentucky Derby weekend, and I want a new pony, and you give me one if you love me. That's what I desire. That's not what it means. What it means is our desires, God's desires, become our desires. He instills his desires within us, and we will want to do what he wants us to do when we commit our prayers to him. That happened to me when I was a senior in high school. When I was a senior in high school, I wasn't a bad kid. I was a church kid all my life, but I was a very self-centered kid, and I didn't know it. I lived my life for me. I did what I wanted to do. When I woke up on weekends, okay, what can I do to have fun? What parties are happening this weekend that I can attend? Um, what can I do with my friends? That On and on, right? But I remember in the spring semester, beginning of spring semester of my senior year in high school, after going to a party on a Friday night, I felt really empty. And just kind of empty. And so I remember walking on Monday and just praying, God, if there's anything more, then boom, the Lord met me on the sidewalk. I remember it as if it were yesterday. He just met me and he opened my eyes and he said, oh, I got so much more for you. And I don't know how I knew this, but I knew it. And I started to weep when I was walking home that day. And my desires changed overnight. I no longer wanted to go to the beer blasts and the parties and pursue this and that. Instead, on Friday night, I was at a Bible study with some of my peers and some older guys. And I joined a prison ministry team. And I went to jails and prisons that summer, all summer long, ministering to people. And I wanted to witness to people. I wanted to share my faith with my friends just a month earlier or weeks earlier I would not ever even say God bless you if they sneeze because it'd be too embarrassing for me to say God out loud but now he's sharing Jesus my desires changed and when we breathe a prayer of submission to God Lord Lord what do you have for me he changes our desires he gives us the desires of our heart and we want to do what God wants us to do it's not like Eat your vegetables, son. Eat your vegetables. They're good for you. He's saying, here's your steak. Or here's your Sunday, your banana split. We want it. We want what God wants to give to us. And we think, no, man, I, I'll be so burdened with all these laws and rules. No, deep within us, we want what God has for us. He created us to fill that void. And when we discover it, there'll be nothing more exciting and adventuresome than living for Christ. And then finally, prayer realigns our purposes in life. He redirects our trust, he reshapes our perspective, he renews our passions, and he realigns our purposes in life. Prayer opens our hearts and hands to the one who gives what we ask, or he gives what we know, what he knows we need, which is always the best. 
For example, Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, he had dreams, he had plans, he had a purpose in life. He wanted to be the best leader that there was. He was the youngest brother of many, and uh, he, God had given him dreams, and so he knew he was going to be, be a leader, even over his brothers, his family one day. And then his father was so proud of him, he made a special coat for him, and he wore it, and his brothers became insanely jealous, so much so they wanted to kill him. But one brother convinced the others, we can't kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. And so he ended up, Joseph ended up in slavery in Egypt. And I can imagine Joseph praying when he was in Egypt, Lord, would you please move one of my brothers, maybe Simeon, to repent of his ways and come and rescue me and take me back home. I miss my family. He prayed and prayed and nothing happened. Silence, crickets. And then later on, Lord, would you please convince Potiphar that I am not guilty of this false accusation against his wife. Please convince him so I don't, I'm not punished. Crickets. When he was thrown into prison for some years, Lord, could you get me out of this prison of loneliness and darkness? Where are you, God? Nothing for years. God did answer Joseph's prayers, though, every time. Problem was, he didn't answer yes. He said, not yet. My timing is perfect. I've got something far greater for you than you can even imagine. And so years later, Joseph would experience answers in the affirmative to his prayers. When God used him, raised him up in power in Egypt to rescue his family from extinction. And not only rescue his family, but build his family and grow his family to a mighty nation, the nation of Israel. Joseph saved his family, also saved Egypt from famine as well. 700 years later, David pens these words in Psalm 25, and he concludes the same thing. When he concludes the psalm in the last verse, verse 22, David writes, Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Even as you've de delivered me over and over again by the mighty hand of Goliath, that Philistine, by King Saul, who sought to end my life and I was on the run, you protected me. And you delivered me from enemy after enemy when I was fighting on the field. A thousand years later, after David, Jesus would proclaim in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is what Oswald Chambers says of this verse. He says, if we believe in Jesus, it is not what we gain or get, but what he pours through us that counts. It's not that God makes us beautifully rounded grapes, but that he squeezes the sweetness out of us we measure our life only by what God pours through us for the benefit of others. Notice David said, he concluded after all of his pain, and Lord, remember Israel, deliver them from all their troubles. He was other-centered. That was his purpose. And we have a purpose that is much higher than our entertainment and our happiness. Our purpose is far greater than we can ever imagine. How do we discover our purpose? We've covered this in the past. 
but you need to know your shape. If you don't know what your purpose is, how God wants to pour his life through you to bless others, then you need to know what your spiritual gifts are and there are spiritual gifts tests online. You need to know what your heart is or your passions. What are you passionate about? Then God would use your passion and utilize it for his kingdom, not just for your own pleasure. Um, and your abilities, same thing. What are your abilities? God may want to use your ability. You know, I was a diver in college, and so God used my ability for diving and coaching to get into the high school systems as a uh, youth pastor and meet a lot of kids that way. Personality. What's your personality? God's not going to ask introverts to be speakers on Sunday morning, typically, or be greeters on Sunday morning, but what, what is your personality? And then finally, even most importantly, what have been your experiences? I've known people who have walked through divorce who end up ministering to divorce people. I've known people who have survived horrible marriages who have counseled struggling marriages. I've known people who have lost children who have been used mightily to care for others who have lost children or spouses or whatnot. On and on. My question to you is, what is your experience and how are you using it for God's purposes? Prayer helps us discern what our purpose is and uh, to realign our purpose. This is God's ultimate purpose for each one of us. And he does his best work through those with open hands and open hearts. Just finally, just as a review, our prayers will redirect our trust away from us back to God. It'll reshape our perspective from our perspective to God's perspective. Our prayers will renew our passions, actually change our desires, make them God's desires. And finally, when we pray, our purposes will be realigned to God's purposes, and there's no greater life than living for God. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here today, that you've spoken through your word, through your servant, King David. Thank you, Lord, that he was a man after your heart and that we can learn and benefit from his many prayers in the book of Psalms. Lord, make us people of passionate prayer, people of your word, people who are in community with you and communing with you. Lord, and as we end this service, Lord, uh, we thank you that you invite us to commune with you in a very special way through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is a very special time for you, Lord, to meet with us and for us to meet with you. So as we commune with you through, at your table, continue to speak to us through this service of communion and through the closing music. Lord, continue to move us and shape us, change us. In Christ's name, amen.